Welcome to the Global Development Institute podcast. Based at the University of Manchester, we're Europe's largest research and teaching institute addressing poverty and inequality. Each episode will bring you the latest thinking, insights and debate in development studies. Hello and welcome to this Global Development Institute podcast. My name is Rob Dorber. I'm a communications officer within the GDI. And today I'm delighted to be joined by two academics, Seth Schindler and Tom Gillespie. Starting with you, Seth, can you just briefly introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Hi, Rob. Thank you for having me. My name is Seth Schindler. I'm Senior Lecturer in Urban Development and Transformation. And most of my research is focused on, at the moment, deindustrialization in certain cities. And then as a response to that, large-scale infrastructure projects that seek to connect cities with each other and with global markets. Thank you. And you, Tom? Hi, my name's Tom Gillespie. I'm a Hallsworth Research Fellow based here at GDI in Manchester. My research is kind of primarily focused around the politics of urban development, particularly issues to do with land, housing uh, and finance. Thank you very much. And today, I guess we're all together because you've both just recently published a new open access paper, Deindustrialization in Cities of the Global South, in the journal Area Development and Policy. Uh, This paper is a collaborative effort with colleagues both internal and external to the GDI. Can you just give an outline of how the project sort of started and evolved? Sure. We had a session at the Development Studies Association, actually two sessions at the conference in 2018. And the authors were all participants in in those sessions. And our objective there was to just simply uh, determine what was happening in different places, there was an implicit agenda uh, to compare different cities around the world. And this was with the the understanding that many cities in the global South were experiencing significant deindustrialization, but it was not yet on the scholarly agenda, at least among urban scholars. So it was kind of an inauguration of a new research agenda for many of us. And as you mentioned just then, so many people listening would maybe associate the process of deindustrialization with sort of America, Western Europe and OECD countries. Are we talking about a similar evolution of deindustrialization in the global south? In fact, we're not. So the evolution is very different. Of course, the end result is the same. You have um, a decline in manufacturing output, which tears communities apart, impacts families, local economies, places, and so on. Uh, But the evolution, so how that transpires, is indeed very different in many cities in the global south. And by the focus of the Global South, it would suggest maybe that this area has been under-researched. Can you explain a little bit why you think this is? Yeah, so I think indeed it's been under-researched, deindustrialization in the Global South. And I think the reason for that is many scholars in urban studies who focus on the Global South or cities in the Global South are incentivized to identify novel features of urban processes in these cities. So that could be a mean a focus on, for example, informal land use, informality in general, um, informal settlements, heterogeneous infrastructure configurations. In other words, the idea is to demonstrate how cities in the global south are different from the ideal type of city that we think of, which tends to to exist in our imagination, at least in the OECD. So, So these scholars tended to focus on aspects of cities that are different rather than something like deindustrialization. Alternatively, scholars who focus on deindustrialization tend to do place-based studies on very particular cities, and they may be somewhat less interested in the process 
and they're focused on the city itself or the region. So many of them may come from a region that has experienced deindustrialization and they have a social or political commitment to that region and they're perhaps less interested in looking far beyond that region. So these people might come from, say, the Midwest in the U.S. and want to examine how capital flight has devastated many cities in this region and their commitment is really to the region and, and the people in it rather than understanding the process. Economists have looked at deindustrialization in the global south. So there's quite a bit of economic data uh, and that's included in somewhat in our paper. But the, the problem with that research is that it's focused at the national scale. I mean, most economists use national level data. So we can see the numbers then. We know that deindustrialization is worse in sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America than it ever was in the OECD. However, that doesn't really tell us anything about the process. Your question asks if it's different. Indeed, it is very different the way it plays out on the ground. And so that's what we try to do is ground our understanding of deindustrialization in the global south, in particular cities, and understand the process rather than just uh, examine the numbers. Okay, so that's really interesting. Some people have also mentioned that deindustrialization in the south um, can maybe be labeled as premature. Can you just explain a little bit to our listeners about, you know, what that means? Sure. Um, in order to understand that, we have to go back to the 1980s when many countries had built up quite a bit of, of sovereign debt that throughout the 70s. You had the global financial crisis or crises uh, in the 1970s. And as a result, many countries started to default on their debt in the early 1980s. This was a result of the U.S. raising interest rates in the very early 1980s. We saw Mexico enter a debt crisis and this spread to a number of other countries. Now, in order to be rescued from the IMF, they had to submit to uh, structural adjustment programs. So this required them typically to lower trade barriers, liberalize their economies, and so on. We're all familiar with many of the, the components of these packages. And the promise then was that investment capital would be attracted and they would see significant foreign direct investment, i.e. factories from multinational corporations would relocate from the OECD in their cities. That, of course, didn't happen to most countries. So Richard Baldwin shows us that the vast majority of capital that left the OECD went to six countries, some uh, five more countries. Uh, you pretty much have 90-some percent of that capital. Uh, and you can imagine which countries those were. So Mexico, for example, attracted a significant amount of foreign investment from the United States, which concentrated in Maquilladoras, Poland as well, China, etc. Now, what happened then is that those factories combined low-skilled labor with capital from the OECD. And they then evolved into very durable and productive global production networks. Now, those production networks are competing against factories in other parts of the global south, places where there was never an influx of capital. As a result, those places are ill-equipped to compete against this combination of high technology from the global north and OECD with low-skill, low-wage labor from the global south in these production networks. So that's why we're seeing so much deindustrialization. Now, why do people call it premature? Well, that's because you don't see an increase in productivity in the service sector, and therefore you don't see an evolution of the economy from manufacturing to services. Now, the name is a little bit unfortunate because it, it establishes events in the OECD as the, the norm, and then anything else that happens is, is different and therefore it's premature. It could just be that uh, the deindustrialization we saw in Detroit was late <laughs> rather than other places being early. But that's exactly what's happening. So rather than a kind of endogenous evolution, deindustrialization in the global south is happening as a result of an exogenous shock, mainly 
producers simply can't compete with exports from East Asia that are being managed by global production networks. We see uh, the UN Conference on Trade and Development released a report some years back about the increase in South-South trade, and we saw that it's you know increased 15% per year for the last 15, 20 years or so. More than 80% of it originates in East Asia. So as a result, we're seeing finished products shipped from East Asia to other places in Sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America, and many of those economies uh, are witnessing a reprimarization. So this has been a, a topic in Brazilian politics in that you're seeing capital, rather than shift from manufacturing to services, as you saw in the OECD, we're seeing it shift from manufacturing to production of basic foodstuffs, agribusiness, mining, and so on. Now, this, again, is very different from an evolutionary perspective and what happened in the OECD. So in the OECD, we saw the winners deindustrialized. In other words, if you were at the forefront of production, like let's take Detroit's automotive sector, for example, if you're at the forefront of production, the frontier of technology and so on, then it made sense to unbundle production and send manufacturing in one place and keep the service components of the white collar jobs and the service components of that, that industry in Detroit. As a result, you know, the, the city still has quite a large service sector and it's still tied into that value chain. At the moment, however, in, in many global south countries, it's not the winners that are being that are deindustrialized and being unbundled, it's the losers. It's domestic industry that simply cannot compete with global value chains, and therefore when they collapse, there's nothing. You don't get this kind of residual service sector that can that stays around and at least provides some jobs and there might be multiplier effects within the local economy. You just get complete collapse. So we're seeing, in many ways, a very different phenomenon take shape than uh, what we saw in, in the OECD in the 1980s, 90s, and into the 2000s. Thank you very much, Seth. That's a really, really good background and overview of the evolution. Um, if I could just bring Tom in now to focus on some of the case studies you use. So these come from cities across continents. Uh, if you could just introduce them and maybe highlight some of their key features to our listeners, Tom. Sure. So Seth's already mentioned the urban scholars who are interested in the urban impacts of the industrialization. They've tended to focus on cities that are kind of traditionally understood as post-industrial cities. So, you know, you've got your Detroits, your, your New Yorks, your Londons, uh, your Manchesters, and, and so on. And what we tried to do in this paper is say, okay, we're going we're gonna to sort of shift the focus away from these cities. And we're going to look at contexts that have experienced significant deindustrialization, but they haven't really been studied as post-industrial cities. And so not much is, is really known about how deindustrialization has had an impact at the urban scale. So we looked at, at four countries. We looked at India, Turkey, Tanzania, and Argentina. And these are all countries that have experienced significant deindustrialization since about the 1980s, but, but they haven't really been studied, particularly in terms of how has deindustrialization transformed uh, cities and towns in these places. So, so I'll just talk you through these, these cases now. So the, the first is India. And in this case, we actually looked at two different cities in order to think about how, okay, so economists have tended to look at the industrialization as something um, that's kind of occurring at the national scale. But we're, we're arguing, actually, if you look at the subnational scale and you start to look at different cities, 
it can reveal the fact that even within the same country, the drivers of deindustrialization can be quite different depending on, on the specifics of different cities. So we found that in Bangalore, you have a kind of shift to a service-based economy, particularly a lot of investment in ICT that you would traditionally associate with, uh, you know, with a post-industrial urban economy. But by contrast, in Mumbai, actually what's going on, it's less about a shift from manufacturing to services. And it's much more about the people who are running the city trying to extract rent from urban land by basically transforming industrial land uses into real estate. So this kind of reveals the fact that you you can't just look at what's going on at the national scale. You have to drill down a bit and look at particular urban contexts. So next we looked at Turkey. And in this case, we argued that actually, uh, in order to understand the industrialization in Turkey, you have to look at national politics and look at how the AKP government has basically tried to build popular legitimacy for its rule through promoting private property ownership for urban citizens. And the way it's done this is by investing in in urban infrastructure and providing cheap credit for investment in real estate. And, And we thought this was quite interesting because it raises some questions about the relationship between urban transformation and deindustrialization. So whereas people who've written about deindustrialization in contexts such as North America have often said that urban processes of deindustrialization then have certain consequences in terms of urban transformation. So for example, deindustrialization in a city like New York created conditions for subsequent processes of gentrification because you basically have capital moving out of inner city areas which leads to that area becoming run down and you have you know empty warehouses which then that creates the the conditions for profitable reinvestment in the built environment whereas what what we argued in in relation to the turkey case is actually this shows that processes of urban transformation so a lot of investment in the built environment can actually precipitate a process of deindustrialization. So it kind of reverses um, that causality that's traditionally associated with urban processes of deindustrialization. So next we looked at Tanzania. And in this case, we focused on the, the impacts of deindustrialization on the labor force. And we looked in particular at how urban populations in Tanzania, they, they've experienced the process of, of what you might call economic informalization. And we looked at how this has been experienced from one generation to, to another. So whereas the older generation had kind of grown up working in factories, the younger generation, they didn't have this opportunity because a lot of the factories had closed. And instead, they, they were experiencing unemployment and also trying to make a living in the informal economy. And we looked at how this was creating tensions between generations. Uh, Young people kind of felt like they hadn't had the same opportunities as their parents. And we also looked at how the fact that there was this huge labour surplus was basically having a kind of downward pressure on working conditions for those people who were 
formerly employed in industry still. Uh, and then finally, we looked at the case of Argentina. And we, we explored how Argentina actually experienced kind of cycles of deindustrialization and reindustrialization, depending on what kind of national development strategy and what ideology was in the ascendancy at a particular point in time. So Argentina was probably one of the countries in the global south that experienced the highest degree of industrialization in the 20th century. Uh, and then when neoliberalism became dominant in the 1990s, leading up to the 2001 crisis, uh, you then have a process of deindustrialization. Um, and then you've got a return of kind of what, what you might call a neo-developmental government in the, in the first part of the 21st century, who tries to kind of re reintroduce protectionist policies in order to build up domestic industry again. So one of the things we looked at in this case study is, is uh, the role of popular contestation. So we looked at how urban populations had, had responded to industrialization around the 2001 crisis through, for example, occupying empty factories and turning them into workers' cooperatives. Then we also look at how the industrialization had fed into urban inequalities, how a kind of shift away from industry towards real estate and urban infrastructure had created an extremely unequal urban geography. Thanks, Tom. That's a, a really clear overview of the case studies you'd use in your paper. And as you've rightly highlighted, they're extremely varied across cities. Are there any sort of main lessons, despite their differences, you can learn from all of these case studies when looked at together? Yeah, so I think there's, there's a few kind of key conclusions that we draw from looking at all of these cases together. So one is that you can't assume that the industrialization always is, is driven by the same underlying process. So it's not necessarily always about a shift from a manufacturing-based economy to a service-based economy due to increases in technological productivity. So depending on which case, I think you can identify very different drivers of the industrialization. So for example, in Bangalore, you do have a kind of shift towards a more high-tech service-based economy. But then in Mumbai, it's much more about elites trying to extract rents by transforming urban land. Then in, in the case of Turkey, you've got to look at the role of national politics in urban transformation and how a kind of shift from an industrial economy to a, a real estate-based economy, the role that that plays in building popular legitimacy for the government. So we think comparing these examples shows that you, you really need to, to look at specific contexts uh, in order to understand what, what is driving the industrialization. Another key lesson that I think you can draw from the cases is that you, you can't necessarily assume that there's a, a linear relationship between economic processes of the industrialization and urban processes of, of transformation and change. So I mentioned the example of Turkey, which kind of in, inverts that traditional relationship where first you have the industrialization and, and then you have urban transformation. In, in that case, we actually found that it was urban transformation and, and investment in the built environment that was driving 
the industrialization. Another lesson is to do with the socio-spatial impacts of the industrialization. So I, I would say a kind of common finding across the cases is that as you see a shift away from economies based on industry and manufacturing towards economies that are more based on uh, real estate speculation, extracting rent from urban land, this tends to exacerbate and intensify urban inequalities and also has very kind of worrying impacts on urban labour force. So, you know, where is manufacturing has traditionally been a really good way of absorbing urban populations into paid employment. In the case of Tanzania shows that how the industrialization basically involves this process of people being made surplus to requirements. You know, they're they no longer have any use for capital and so they have to try and uh, you know, make a livelihood by themselves in the informal economy. And this creates a lot of stress and a lot of tension. Thank you very much. So it's clear it's a really interesting paper. And I would recommend anyone going over to the GDI pages or following us on Twitter to maybe read the full the full article when you get the chance. In this day and age, I have to ask, it's inescapable at minute, highlighted by the fact we're all talking to each other from our own homes that COVID-19 is having a very dramatic impact on society as we know it. I want to ask both of you here, can we learn anything from the industrialisation that's occurring in southern cities that may be relevant to what is probably going to be an unavoidable post-COVID economic crisis? Seth, do you want to start this question? Yeah, well, indeed, it's a great question because we've already seen uh, manufacturing data coming out of China, uh, also other places in the OECD, Germany, France, the UK, you know, it's a cliff edge. So essentially the entire world is deindustrializing at the moment. And so, yeah, how are we going to respond? Well, I think cities will be at the forefront of that response. And in many cases, they already have, I mean, city governments. So this is particularly the case in countries where the central government was either slow to respond to the health threat caused by COVID-19, ineffective or just plain incompetent. I'm thinking of the US and Brazil in particular. In those countries, city governments were much faster to respond, to impose a lockdown, to set up some sort of testing facilities, to try and prepare for the wave of, of people that would be requiring intensive medical care. This will have to continue as cities, as we transition then to uh, focusing on the economic fallout of COVID-19. I think cities, first of all, can be the eyes and ears of central governments. Now, obviously, cities by themselves cannot undertake the kind of large-scale stimulus programs that are going to be needed in the coming months and years. So let's take the U.S., for example. You know, a $2 trillion stimulus package was passed by the United States government, but it seems unable to distribute it. So we know now that some large multi-million dollar corporations, multinational corporations, obtained funding from the stimulus package that was meant for small businesses. How on earth did that happen? I think if you had city governments helping with the distribution of the stimulus package, that could have been avoided. So this is going to be the case even more so, or it's even more important that city governments are involved in helping central governments respond in developing countries where you have many more small and medium enterprises, many of which are informal, and municipal governments know who's doing what and where for the most part, far better than central governments do. So they'll be able to help identify for central governments, small and medium-sized enterprises that require help that are more or less healthy companies that need to be supported. 
I think there are templates for this. I mean, that's what I think our research shows. And when you look at deindustrialization in developing countries, you do see some city governments really trying to respond. In some cases, you know, you see city governments that welcome deindustrialization because they expect that afterwards, as Tom pointed out, you'll get a real estate boom. Uh, you might foster a shift from manufacturing to services. But other city governments have problematized deindustrialization in a very different way, and they've tried to protect small and medium-sized enterprises. So probably the best example I can think of is from Argentina, a city called San Martin, which is in the Buenos Aires uh, metropolitan area. And San Martin has established some years back what is called uh, Punto Pime, so small and medium-sized enterprise point. And the central, uh, the, the city government provides small and medium-sized enterprises with a meeting space. They have an office with cubicles and meeting rooms that small businesses can use if they want to meet with each other or with clients. And there's also a full-time staff that runs what's called a socioeconomic observatory. So again, they do market research and research on small and medium-sized enterprises within the city. They know who's doing what. They would be able to help the central government in the event that they want to support uh, local businesses. Second, um, they provide information to small and medium-sized enterprises on markets, both within Argentina and also abroad. So they actually lead delegations to neighboring countries, and they also help small and medium-sized enterprises take advantage of national programs. This would more or less be a continuation of what they're already doing. And finally, they encourage social and environmental responsibility within the city. So this is really innovative. They establish links with small and medium-sized enterprises, and they help them, but then they also encourage them to practice socially responsible and environmentally sustainable production processes. So this will be important because Argentina has launched a, a stimulus package that's about 1.2% of GDP in response to COVID-19, and it supports vulnerable groups as well as hard-hit sectors. So it provides exemptions from social security contributions to small and medium-sized enterprises. There are grants to cover payroll costs, subsidized loans for construction costs in case they want to actually invest in their businesses in this time of crisis, credit guarantees for bank lending for certain firms involved particularly in food production. And many firms will be unaware of those programs, while the central government will be unaware of the firms, particularly small and medium-sized enterprises. And you need city governments there to tie them together. And so I think that model can be replicated in, in many cities. Thanks very much. It's good to know that even in the crisis that we're in, there are sort of hopes or green shoots of recovery in certain places that maybe can be followed. Anything to add, Tom? Yeah, so I just wanted to make a couple of points about that that last question to do with, you know, what, what can we learn from this for, for COVID-19? So, so the first regards question of labour and, and organising. So, you know, in, in industrial countries, organised labour has traditionally been the kind of engine of social progress and, and that's why we've seen uh, the emergence of welfare states in industrial economies. If, if those states are now going to experience processes of deindustrialization uh, as a result of COVID-19 and they can potentially look to examples such as Tanzania where you've already seen you know huge, huge amounts of labour becoming redundant to the requirements of capital and then that raises the question of what sort of organisations and institutions need to be formed in order to try and organise people outside of traditional industrial workplaces. And there's been a lot of work done on organising in 
the informal sector in cities of the global south and the you know the types of organizations people can form the types of demands that people can make uh, when they're not traditionally employed and they don't have a traditional boss to make demands of so that that's an example where you know potentially you know the global north could learn from the, the experience of the global south the second point i wanted to make regards government stimulus and the role that that can potentially play in reindustrializing economies so you know governments are going to have to spend a lot of money in order to try and um, you know get their economies uh, going again there's no way around that and that then raises the question of okay what what types of economic activities do governments want to invest in and i think the, the idea Ideas that have been circulating recently around a Green New Deal or a Green Industrial Revolution are very well placed to, to inform these discussions. So, you know, this is basically the idea that you can try and re-industrialise economies that have experienced deindustrialization by investing in low-carbon industry. You know, so building wind farms is the example that's often cited in the UK. And so in some ways, this crisis can be sort of used as, you know, I don't want to use the word opportunity in relation to a pandemic, but these these ideas that have been developing around, uh, you know, how, how do you transition from, from a high carbon economy to a low carbon economy? The fact that governments now have to become much more interventionist and they're going to have to basically become Keynesian in order to try and keep their economies going. You know, this could be the time to, to engage in that process of transition. Okay, thanks very much, Tom. Well, it's been really interesting talking to you both. The paper sounds fascinating. I would recommend any of our listeners to go on and read it on our web pages or our social. I'm sure we'll be doing more of these podcasts as the weeks and months go on. So please uh, stay tuned. And thanks for joining me today, Seth and Tom. Thank you, Rob. Thanks, Rob.